0: Welcome to Canine Hijinks, the podcast for those who want to explore more ways to have fun with their dogs and perhaps discover the wider world of training and dog sports. It may even convert the casual pet owner into a dog sport enthusiast. Join me, Alyssa Looney. And me, Whitney Taylor, as we share our dog training
1: journeys, as well as resources you can use to enhance your life with your canine friends.
0: Welcome to Canine Hijinks. Thanks for choosing to spend your time with us. We have a great episode this week as we are joined by Shade Weitzel to talk about protection sports. And I know so little about them that I'm really excited to learn more. But first, let's introduce Shade. I'm right there with
1: you, Alyssa. Shade has been dabbling in dog training since she was a young girl and worked many jobs to gain experience in the field, including as a kennel manager, a veterinary technician, and groomer, as well as taking continuing education courses. In 1994, Shade moved to a full dog training career and now competes in Schützen and AKC obedience. She teaches handlers how to play with their dogs and teaches humans how to teach their dogs to live in our world, as well as problem-solving behavior of all kinds, including aggression shade has utilized a variety of training tools over the course of her career but now is primarily positive reinforcement based and does not find it necessary to use any pressure or correction based tools to achieve life manners behavior modification or sport akc or schutzend behaviors she specializes in high drive dogs and loves to teach their handlers how to channel prey drive and arousal issues into reinforcement that the handler controls along with teaching the dogs how to be calm and not adrenalized twenty four seven. She has achieved many titles on multiple dogs over the years and has an impressive record in both IPO and obedience. Shade offers private training, seminars across the country, and is also a regular instructor with the Fenzi Dog Sports Academy. Shade, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And um I this one's on protection stuff and I'd love to do a toy skills. Yes. Uh, this is- which is really like the foundation for protection um, and the foundation for a lot of other sports. So thanks
0: so much for having me. That, so your toy skills is actually how I came to know you because my border collie, Jet, he's six now, and I've done a couple of seminars with you uh, in large part because he doesn't like to give me the toys back. And he gets so sort of over-aroused that, that a lot of times he literally can't. He just, you can feel it in his jaw shaking as he holds the toy so tight. And it wasn't long after a seminar with you that I was finally get able to get him to drop a toy on a command. And that was such a proud moment for me. Um, So definitely would love to have you back to talk about toys because um, I think so many agility folks, which is our, where we come from, have trouble um, providing clarity around toy skills and, The lessons that I've learned because of Jet, I have used with Ale and how nice it is to have a dog now that I can just use toys with because everything's so clear. She lets them out so easily. And if there is a hint of her not wanting to let go of the toy, I know that I've pushed something a little far or that she's getting tired or whatever. And that's all knowledge that I wouldn't know if I hadn't had so much trouble with Jet and then come to your seminars. (laughs) That's, that's so awesome to hear.
2: And very much kind of really what I want to teach people about the toys is like, you know, once you teach the skills and you have the dog dropping, then that little hint of like when they like take a little longer to drop or they arc when they come back. It's just like I just want handlers to know what that means so they can adjust the training session, you know. Um, So I'm so glad that you're conveying that because that's just so important to me because the dogs have an opinion you know, and it allows us to go, Oh, okay. You're saying this is really hard. So, yeah. yeah. So before
1: we get into our topic, we like to start by talking about what we've been up to with our dogs. Shade, can you introduce the dog or dogs in your household and tell us what you've
2: been up to with them lately? Well, I've got three. Um, I've had up to six dogs and now I have three, which is sad because the old dogs passed on, but I have to say three is like the perfect number. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I have uh, Bales, who is nine years old, and she's kind of the dog I sort of pull out to like uh, teach stuff when I need to show something for a class. Um, and she's kind of my house dog. She's the one that stays home. Um, I did breed her. She is Onesie's sister. Uh, so I've got Ones and Bales who are German Shepherds and they are um, nine and a half years old right now. I cannot believe I just said that number, nine and a half. But ones is, he's Schutzen two uh, and mainly because he's nine and a half, um, he's kind of retired from the more active parts of the sport. Uh, So I'm doing tracking with him. And he just recently got his TD, uh, his tracking dog in AKC this um, fall. And he got his FH, which is an advanced tracking test in Schutzen. So we're currently uh, training for the next advanced course uh, or next advanced thing in Schutzen, which is called an FH2. Currently, like last uh, week when we were practicing, I had access to a huge field and we clocked the length of the track and it was 0.9 miles. So he did almost a mile long track. And he just nailed it. He was so good. He just really loves in his old life to just track. And that's really cool. So my youngest German Shepherd is Talik, and he is three and a half years old. And we're currently um, working on his Schutzen 1. And hopefully I'll be competing with him this spring, starting in April. And so we're kind of really hard at work trying to get the last parts of what he needs uh, to learn to build those behaviors. And We need to get them pretty soon because the couple months before trial is kind of spent sequencing and adding, uh, basically, your behavior should be trained, and now we're going to sequence and and do that kind of stuff to prepare them for the trial. So we're really hard at work on that, and I'm hoping that I can trial in April, but it's going to be dicey, we'll see. So, yeah.
1: Alyssa, what have you been up to?
0: Well, it's been a training week this week. Had some friends over actually, which was nice and did some training on sort of one jump skills, mostly with Ale, but I also have been working on jet weaves, which are another hard thing for him, uh, hoping that those That work pays off this weekend. We're going to trial just on Sunday um, in a USDAA agility trial. So this week has been all about training. What about you?
1: Same. Sprite is in that spot where it sounds like much like shade. She needs every skill to like level up by one so she's got a good foundation for threadles and backsides and verbal turns on a jump and tunnel threadles and her a-frame on straight and approaches and exits looks good and weave pulls and now i need to add more motion to all of my verbal commands. I need to proof more weave pull entries for, you know, her in different positions and me in different positions and turns off of the A-frame. So it's one of those points where it's not quite as daunting when they're a puppy and you're sort of trying to add everything, but still it's that place where you're like, God, the list is just so long what, mm-hmm. what do I work on? How do I not do too much? And so I try really hard to just pick like two things and, and the two things could be like working on the dog walk and a jump and the jump might have several kind of different bits, but th- then I don't also work weave poles. So that's, that's right. where, that's where I'm at. Yeah.
2: Yep. Yeah. Sounds... What might be interesting to you guys is so there's an A-frame in Shultzon. So I'm training Talik to do a running contact uh-huh. on the A-frame, and so our, our Schutzen A-frame is, I think, steeper and shorter than yours. It's going so well. I'm so happy uh, with what it looks like, but we haven't gotten up to full di- full height yet, mm-hmm. so it, it'll be interesting if he can do his striding that he's doing now at full height, but it's it's it was like magic for me when I was watching his <laughs> too running contacts and, and I was just like, how do you do that? And then I took a call from Megan Foster. And yes. I was like, oh, that makes total sense. Okay. Yes. So I have my little frame on my A-frame. And um, once he figured out how to collect and actually land in the A-frame, the hardest part was like on the ground. Now the actual jump is is going really easy. Uh so I just kind of move it up a little bit, you know, every twice a week. And it's so awesome. I'm so happy to see what it looks like, you know, full height and, and trial wise and how it holds up. But I'm very excited about it right now.
1: Well, and that was the funny thing, you know, with Bray, I, I trained her a frame and I'm like, okay, I think it's good, but I kind of didn't know if it would hold up. And so far it's been really consistent. I'm like, wow, that's so nice to not worry about. The A-frame, um, right? Then mm-hmm. it's, it's just gonna yeah. be there, which is that's a new feeling for me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love putting the work into stuff and training it, training it right, and not having to worry about it.
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: It's just like, and I I do feel like this will be one of that. Like he's uh-huh. learning the striking. Honestly, I don't feel like the frame needs even needs to be there anymore. Like he he understands where to land. I think it's going to transfer, but I haven't done it on any other A-frame, so we'll see. Well, and that, Maybe was, I'll be eating. that was the funny <laughs> thing with Sprite. When I put the
1: frame on the A-frame, I, she was struggling because she seemed to think she needed to, like, leap over it, and so it messed everything up, and so it was like, all right, well, I guess I'll just take this away, and it was fine. Dogs are so funny when they have those yeah. those little quirks that you're like, okay, no, I'm not supposed to take this away yet, but it seems like it's causing more problems. All right, I'm just going to yeah. listen to what you're telling me and try something else. <laughs> yeah, awesome.
0: I do. I audited Megan Foster's uh, A-frame class also. That's what I used for All-A, and I loved the groundwork in there. That's not an approach I had really used with any previous dogs, and no surprise, Jet has a terribly inconsistent A-frame. And so I actually went back and worked it with him too, and it is improving. So, hey. Yeah, good. All right. So let's dive in to the topic at hand. I know there are several protection sports out there. Schutzen is one of them. Can you give us a broad overview of what protection sports are and maybe the broad differences between them?
2: Sure. So I think there's, I, I could be wrong, um, but there's four main protection sports in the U.S. And we have Schutzen, which is now called IGP, uh, and so it's been called IPO, it's now called the new letters or IGP, but for the sake of whatever, we'll call it um that's the old name of it, and it means protection dog. It's from Germany, and it was originally developed as a breed test for German Shepherds. And it is mainly, uh, there's lots of barking, so this is a short answer, there's lots of barking, and the dog bites a sleeve that the bad guy, helper, we call him a helper, Uh, wears on either the left or the right arm. So the dog mainly only uh, bites a targeted sleeve on the helper. And then you have the ring sports, uh, which are more suit sports. So in that, the decoy wears an entire suit and the dog targets anywhere on the suit. There's lots of training that goes into targeting there. It's not like the dog just bites anywhere. Um, But there's French ring, which is obviously from France. Um, There's Mondio, which I'm I'm not going to talk much about Mondio because I don't know that much about it. And then there's PSA. I think PSA was developed here. So it's Protection Sports Association, I think. And we don't have a lot of it, at least in my area. uh, But that's another another one. So basically, you've got Schutzen, which is a lot of barking. You've got the ring, uh, which is sleeve. And you've got the ring sports, which are more biting the suit. And those are kind of the easy, broad differences between them. And so
0: Schutzen is your primary sport. Is that right?
2: Yes. I've done the most in Schutzen. I've been doing it for years and years. Um, I dabble in French ring. I have access to a lovely French ring uh, club that is closer to me than anything Schutzen-wise. I appreciate the differences. Um, I know everybody likes to compare things and say that, you know, this sport is better than this sport, but, as somebody who has done both sports, they're just different. They require different skills from the dog and they kind of require a different dog. But so my main experience is Schutzen and I have dabbled in the French ring. Um, I do plan on doing French ring with Talik. He has done a lot of suit fighting, but he right now I'm kind of really concentrating on trying to get a Schutzen uh, titles.
0: Can you talk through what does Schutzen look like just generally speaking in terms of what the dog does, what the handler does. Is there tracking involved in Schutzen? Kind of give us the overview, a little more specific.
1: They do a lot more than the bite. It's not like that's an entire trial run, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: So in in Schutzen, you have three phases for the dog. So oftentimes we talk about it like a um, triathlon for the dog. And if it's a club trial, you may actually do those three phases in one day. If it's a nationals or a higher tier w- trial where you have a lot more dogs, you'll you'll oftentimes do obedience and protection in one day, and then you'll do tracking on another day. But let's say it's a just a normal club day or a club trial, uh, you'll do, do tracking in the morning, um, you'll do uh, and then you'll do obedience, which has all that, and then you'll do protection. Each time the dog will like come out for its particular thing, and tracking will be on a different field. So tracking will be in a tracking field that looks more like a farm field. Uh, and then you'll travel and go back to the club field uh, that is set up with obedience stuff and then protection. So, yeah, those are that that would be in like your competition, basically. So, OK,
0: can you walk yeah. through what the obedience behaviors are that you guys do in that section of the work? Yeah.
2: Um, so we we do a lot of healing. <laughs> <laughs> there's tons of healing there's uh so lots of healing uh off leash and then there's uh out of motions we call them out of motion. so they're positions out of motion so you'll you'll have to do a sit from heel a down from heel and a stand from heel um there'll be some recalls in there uh then you have to do retrieves you have to do retrieves over jumps it's like a retrieve over the a-frame uh so the dog actually has to go over the jump uh to get the dumbbell and then they have to jump back over or jump back over the a-frame with the dumbbell in their mouth and then you'll do a send out where you send the dog and then you down them when like the judge tells you to there will also be a long down stay so there's two dogs on the field at all times and one dog will be doing a down stay um at 30 strides from its handler while the other one is doing the obedience i uh, so oh. Yeah. So, and that downstay can be quite long because the, the other dog is doing all of its stuff. And then you'll, you'll check in and check out uh, with the other dogs. So the dogs will be in close contact, close
0: to each other and have to be under control. Hmm. So that's basically the obedience part of it. And is shits in the sport where I've seen, they look like little teepees and the handlers behind it and the dog like goes and finds them. What's that part of it?
2: So that's protection part of it. Okay. So, In the protection, there's like, we call them blinds. For somebody who's been in the sport for a while, it's kind of interesting because the jump has changed from like, um, it used to be more natural. It had to have like vegetation on the jump. (laughs) So they jump over it. Now it's just, now it's just a jump. Um, But the blinds used to have like trees near them. So like more like, you know, the dog would go find the bad guy in the trees. But now they're just like TPs, and um, you're so in protection, uh, the, the, de- the helper. So we call the guy, the person who wears the sleeve, uh, the helper. Uh, they're always in a designated blind and we know where they are. So it's sort of a matter of obedience that we're sending the dog to a blind away from the helper where the helper is. But the dog needs to show obedience to the handler and be directed. So they, we direct them to different blinds before we finally direct them to the blind where the helper is. And then the dog's supposed to bark and say, hey, here he is. Um, here's the helper. So that's part. And then all the other stuff that comes in the protection part of it. Do you want me to talk about what goes into that protection routine? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Please. <laughs> so basically it's kind of modeled off of police work, but because Schultzen is a sport, when sports are, are modeled off of like normal uh, things that, that the dogs have been selected for, when it goes into a sport, of course, we get more extreme and it, it bears little resemblance to what you know, they uh w- it was original. So you know, take it with a, a grain of salt, basically. But the dog finds the guy, and and it's usually a guy. I find I'm saying he 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 all the time, and I'm offending myself. You know. <laughs> 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 However, it is normally it, it's a physical sport So It is normally a, a athletic per, uh, man who's doing this. We do have some women who do, um and they're they're good. But it it just is. Normally, the person is big and strong, which is normally in our sport men. Um, Okay, so uh, the dog finds the, the bad guy and has to bark and is judged on the quality of its bark, is judged on the focus of its bark. Those kinds of things get really stylized. Um, then the judge motions the handler to come up. The handler has to call the dog off. Then the helper tries to escape. The dog has to get the, the helper before they escape. Then they're judged and shuts them. They're really judged on the barking and the um, biting. So their bite has to be calm. Their bite has to be full. And I don't know if this applies nowadays, but basically when we want dogs to bite, we we don't want them to, Bite all over the place. We want them to have one calm bite. So they actually do if they're actually um, being used in police and military work. They're not causing as much damage if there's just one bite. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. So our dogs, because they are bred theoretically for military and police work, are are judged on the quality of their bite, um, and it does need to be just one bite and very calm about it. So they catch the person. Then there's you know, how then they have to let go and they're judged on the quality of their outing. They're judged on the quality of their control around the helper. So those, Schutzen is very much a fine line between the dog being very motivated to bite and very high arousal but then still being under control. And those things are very heavily judged. And the best dogs are the ones that can ride that line and be really aroused, very motivated, but still under control.
1: It sounds like any high powered athlete though, right?
2: (laughs) Yes, totally. Any high powered dog athlete, human athlete, I think it's all, you know, I mean, I was just watching the biathlon in the Olympics and it's, I just, I love that where they have to like get their heart rates all up They're you know, they're skiing and then they have to, you know, calm themselves down. And I, that's probably one of the things that does appeal to me in these kinds of sports because they do have to be so motivated, but yet so able to like turn it off immediately. And I think that's very cool. I, I think that's very, a very good puzzle as a trainer to figure out how to train that.
1: Well, and I think we're seeing more of that in agility too, which is go as fast as you possibly can and also be able to listen to the sort of least motivating and influential cue, which is a verbal. So I need you to be doing this really, really fast and still listen. And if you... See, as Daisy Peel calls it, she's got the old school Linda Mecklenburg chart that shows like these are all of the cues that your dog is watching in order of sort of importance to them. And your voice is dead last on that list. And so it's yep. really, yep. it's a, it's an interesting training puzzle. And it's an interesting puzzle of what kind of dog can really be successful and how do you build all of that drive and not make them want to be so careful, but they want to be right. So it's similar like you're trying to achieve something slightly different but it's that similar kind of balancing act
2: yes and there's a lot of genetic component i mean i don't know if what you're finding in agility is genetic related but there it's very genetic um the dog that can go to high arousal and still hear its handler and it's very uh like the young dog i have right now um that comes very easy to him Um, He can go very high, but yet he can still hear me. And that's what makes him a really good dog Mm -hmm. um, in that he he wants to fight. He's very into the protection. He loves it. But yet he can he we call it I call it clear headed. He's clear headed enough not to tip over, you know, into rage or whatever you know, we would use in dog terminology and he can still hear me. And that's what makes our, our chances of, of doing really well in competition much better because he genetically has that. Um, so I, I'm very thankful that I found him.
0: Yeah. Um, I, so I've been wondering this because, um, Jet is a half brother to my young dog, Ale. They have the same mom, different dads, And the difference between them to the two of them in terms of what I'm able to train, it's subtle, but I keep wondering, is she so much better because, because of the different father or because I'm such a better trainer now than I was for him? And I don't, of course, there's no way to truly know the answer. Certainly a big portion of it is all of the hard lessons I learned with him and the mistakes I made, I've applied to her, but she just seems to be so much more mature at, you know, 17 months old than he still is at six years old. Um, yeah. And I don't know how much of that is genetic versus my training. Right. Right. And I think it's both. I mean, there's also, you
2: know, learned history is huge and you are a better trainer and we're always a better trainer with our next dogs. But I mean, get this. uh, So I bred uh, ones in talic and the reason or ones in bales and the reason I bred them is because their father, Reiki, was so clear headed. He was such a good dog. And I would say that, uh, you know, he bred two litters, but ones is not clear headed. Like that's Mm -hmm. been my challenge with him. So, so that's why I say it really is a lot of genetics because I trained one, I was a much better trainer with ones than I was with rake and it Mm -hmm. it's yeah, it just was there just right in front of me and at high arousal ones does lose his little mind and his dad never did. Um, huh. So yeah, so I, I went to completely different lines with talic because I was like, okay, I need to try something different. Yeah. They
1: learned history, do you mean, and I don't remember if it was on the the episode with Patricia and Alistair, but the idea that like sheep have a learned history, and so over, over generations, if a farmer has the same sheep that they they sort of seem to remember where they're supposed to go and that there was an, an instance where the herd got wiped out and so they had to get all new sheep and it took like twice as long for the dog to do all the things they needed to do because uh, these sheep had no yeah. learned history. Do you mean that? Like it, it's sort of genetically in there or do you mean something else?
2: I just mean like a learned history with a particular animal. So your dog, we mm-hmm. your dog is learning. Uh, even in the womb. So I'm just meaning all the stuff they're learning. Gotcha. One individual. But that is very interesting about the sheep, for sure. Yeah, I was fascinated so, when
1: I heard that. I was like, hmm, okay, the weird things that can be passed on. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. But certainly with Jet, you know, I, I try to be much better with my training now, but he has. All of the mistakes in his past that I'm trying to overcome where with Ale, it's sort of fresh. What she knows right. is so much clearer from the very get-go that it's, it's easier. I'm not fixing mistakes.
2: Right. You're not working against all the, you know, junk behaviors that you accidentally trained in with jet and yep. that, you know I trained in with ones. He's got all this learned history of stuff that isn't valuable. <laughs> so what I want him to do. <laughs> So you talked about a lot of things,
1: and I don't even think we talked about kind of the tracking piece all that much, though I think I'm guessing that there's a scent that the dog follows his tracking and needs to locate. Yes.
2: Oh, yeah. Let's talk about that. So uh, basically, at the lower levels, the handler lays the track and the dog follows where the handler went. Um, But at higher levels, a stranger to the dog lays the track and they drop what we call articles, which would be um, in trial, that would be like a one inch by three or four inches piece of carpet or wood or leather. And the dog has to indicate those when they come upon them on the track. The dog is not tracking the person's scent because our scent kind of spreads out and the wind blows our scent all over the place. We want the Schutzen dogs to do what we call footstep tracking. And they are judged on this, this is very stylized. They are judged on how concentrated they are to the track and how precise they are to the track. So they need to be tracking the vegetation changes, the bacteria changes, whatever happens between the foot and the contact with the ground, that's what the dog needs to be tracking. And the dog needs to ignore all the other scent out there that naturally they would be going for because they have to stay on the footsteps. And so, yeah. And then they have to uh, do their turns. They get judged on all that indicate the articles. Normally we teach a down so they'll normally down when they come upon them. Uh, So yeah. And the track is aged various uh, times. So like at the upper levels of in three, the track will be aged an hour. Onesies track, he's doing the advanced track, so it's just a tracking title. Um, his next title will be Judge three hours. Wow. So the scent changes a lot after after that long um, between the laying it and then the dog running the track. So yeah. and I love tracking;
0: it's so fascinating to me. I've never thought about what the dog was actually following when they're tracking, being yeah. their foot the footsteps and the vegetation changes versus just the smell of the person. Is that how they train police dogs to track? No. And that's why,
2: because uh, if a police dog footstep tracked, they would never find it, it would be the too person. Slow. Okay. Exactly. So it's, it's very interesting because it's, it's, you know, based on like police work, but so stylized as a sport, it has no relation. It's just a, uh, it, they would teach police dogs to go off the odor and to maybe okay. step track if they need to. And so our Schutzen dogs were very much trying to create value in the footsteps and teach them to ignore the odor and not use that. Like they, We do not want them to use the skin grafts from the
0: the person uh, and we want them to ignore that kind of information. So do dogs that do Schutzen as a sport how does that cross-pollinate then with police dogs or does it not? Is it just completely separate? You can't do both.
2: Well, I don't know that much about like how it cross-pollinates, but theoretically or ideally you would be breeding a, a litter of Malawas or German Shepherds, and you would have some of them go to sport homes. Some of them go to police homes and some of them go to pet homes. And so in my own litter that I bred, I bred one litter, I would call one's a sport dog. His brother went to a police home and just actually retired. So he had a successful career as a police dog. So there were a couple other sport dogs in that litter. And then the rest of them went to successful pet homes. So that's ideally what you would be breeding. So the more highly motivated dogs would go to the more bitey t- homes. And then, cause you're gonna get a variety of personality types in the litter then the, the ones that aren't as bitey or as highly motivated would go to pet homes and experience pet homes, not, not. Yeah. (laughs) That's still a
1: lot of dog.
2: I'm talking ideally. (laughs) Yeah, It is a lot of dog, but some people want that and it shouldn't be, I mean, I might be old school about this, but the majority of your dogs as a breeder, even if you're breeding for sport or police, the majority are going to go into pet homes. So with the German Shepherd, at least, we need to be breeding stable enough temperaments that can go into active pet homes. I do think that part of the issue or challenge for dogs is that it's harder to be a pet dog more and more. You know, mm-hmm. we have more people, we have less room, so I I think that that goes into account too. Is it's way harder to be a pet dog now than I think it used to, so that can be challenging. Or people want different things from their dogs or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, but that's ideal.
1: <laughs> so I'm very curious. We've talked now. We've talked about all the all three of the things. Where the heck do you start with any of this? So like, how many <laughs> behaviors do they need to know before their first competition? Like what do you focus on with a puppy? Like what, what does that look like?
2: Well, um, as somebody who has a three-year-old who's about to do his second trial, I can tell you it's all a bit overwhelming <laughs> <laughs> um, because yeah, I mean, so as a puppy, you might be doing little, little food tracks. You're trying to get your puppy interested in, in, understanding that footsteps lead to food that would be the tracking part uh just the interest in the in the footsteps in obedience you're really working on motivation um building your toy play building your food play and kind of doing you know setting your gate for heel you know what is this dog's heel going to look like you know are they learning their verbals um in Schutzen hardly any body language is allowed so mm-hmm. it's really important uh. that the dog uh, do lots of relevant, have lots of relevance for verbal cues. In fact, when I switch to AKC later on in the dog's career, I actually have a hard time teaching them the signals um, oh. for. Because they've learned to ignore my body language so much that it's it's not as relevant to them. And I see that with my dogs as, as when I start teaching them like the utility exercises. Huh. So protection wise, you want them like that's where I think the toys come in. You need a dog that likes to tug and the handler needs to teach a dog to tug, teach a dog how to chase stuff. And so I don't Young dogs aren't really doing protection work because they um, have young dog brains and that's kind of a older dog kind of temperament thing, you know, that it's fighting. So the older dog needs to grow up as a young dog doing the protection type things. It's more like playing with the handler and learning how to tug in a way that our sport likes things like that. So, yeah, but it can be quite overwhelming for sure. There's a lot of stuff to learn for both handler and dog lots of stuff So then
1: I'm curious is so a 3 year old that is sort of just getting going in agility 15 to 18 months you can get a dog in the ring depending on your your preference for how you approach that but we often talk in agility about like the dog you have on hand your, or your novice A dogs that you get started with do people stumble into this sport can you take a 2 year old dog and train it to do all of this stuff or is this something that you have to just decide you know when the dog is a puppy that this is something that you want to do how do people get started in the sport given how how large of a number of things you have to train is
2: that you know that's a really good question and it really highly depends on how good you want to be if you want to be really good and go to regionals and nationals you need to have the knowledge the club uh, the helper work, and you probably need to start with a year old dog or a puppy. All of us pretty much stumble into Shitzu when we have a lot of dog, mm-hmm. and we go, we need something with this dog, and so I, you know, we stumble into it when our dogs are two or three years old because we want to do something with the dog, and then we train until the that dog either proves that it's not their sport, and if we like the sport, we get another dog mm-hmm. or that dog just takes a little longer to get its titles, usually because it's a new dog and a new handler, right. Usually yeah. not at, you know, the really high levels, but, but enough to do club stuff and have fun with your dog and, and definitely. Got so me. yes, you can definitely start. I mean, I think I started with my first dog. She was three. I don't think she got any titles, but I definitely <laughs> trained her for years and years. <laughs> Uh, and and decided I liked the sport and got a dog that was more genetically suitable for the
1: sport. It's just so funny to me. Like the answer is always, and then you get another dog.
2: Yep. And (laughs) and, and you get a dog because we oftentimes, you know, it's not any, and I think you guys asked this question, not any dog can do this type of sport. Yeah. Definitely. That's more prevalent in the herding and working dogs are the ones that genetically that the dogs that have high feelings, big feelings about, you know, tugging and chasing are the, are the ones that can often succeed in this right. sport. So genetically, oftentimes we stumbled into with our pet, German Shepherd that is that we like and we love, but it's just not their thing. And then we get to decide if we like the sport or if we decide it takes too much time. So, because
0: it takes a lot of time. I think it does seem like protection sports are not something you just dabble in. Like if you decide you like it, it sort of becomes your lifestyle like agility does for us.
2: Yes. I think you guys have a lot of trials you do. That's the impression I get. Mm-hmm. And we don't have all that many trials, but we have to do so much training to trial. So we have so we have a lot um and we only have like, you know, two or three trials a year.
0: Oh wow. Uh, oh wow.
2: Yeah, maybe, you know, if you're doing a club trial, you might or you're just getting into the sport, you you probably train for about two or three years and then kind of do the yearly trial that your club offers. Wow. Um, ah. it, it then can be very very disappointing if you fail that trial. Yeah, that's tough. You've worked so hard. Yeah, you've worked so hard and then there's always a fail in front of you. You'll you always fail at least a you know, but it's a big deal when you've trained for two or three years and of then it, you don't have a good performance. So Well, yeah, I'm in um, the middle
1: of a like five weekend in a row stint of trialing yeah I mean lots and you certainly don't have to trial that much there's lots of decisions that go into that but like Young dog trying to move up through the levels, working out some of the kinks and not always entering all the things. That's very different. I don't think I could train for agility for a whole year and do one trial right. and, and come away with like one or no cues. <laughs> I, I'd be like, yeah, I there's I, there's not enough positive reinforcement for me as a handler to continue doing <laughs> right. this.
2: Right. I think for Shiltson, you really need to get your positive reinforcement as a handler by building the behaviors in mm-hmm. the training itself. Yeah. Um, The trial's no fun for the handler or the dog. And, or, you know, maybe you get a taste of your dog did good at one phase. So then you want to kind of get a little higher. You know, when I'm talking like one trial a year, two or three trials a year, I'm talking kind of like when you're doing the club level, you know, I'm trying to kind of get to the national level with TALIC. And I'm looking at, I did two trials last fall, probably be looking at doing, three to five trials this spring and summer. So okay. his schedule is going to be a lot more, but that's why I'm working so hard right now. Cause I'm basically trying to get all the behaviors on him right now so that I can just kind of <clears throat> sequence and polish in between trials. Interesting. That's that is a lot definitely of work. different. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: Although I think sometimes the fact that we have so much opportunity in agility, can sometimes be an excuse to not train as much as we probably should or as smartly as we probably should sometimes. Like there's a balance there, right? If you can just compete and compete and compete and compete, then if you, if you knock out a cue here and there, then yeah, that's fine.
1: And the thing that I'm sort of, you know, I made this decision to enter all of these trials and I, I think maybe it didn't quite add up in my head when I was looking at the calendar, but I'm actually I'm bummed, I'm bummed that I have trials the next couple couple of weekends because like I said i the first three weeks I learned okay, we have our skills up to this point that's pretty solid like I'm ready to kind of move up and not that I don't train at all during the week, but I would rather be focused on that than kind of continuing to ride this wave. But the way that the entries work and you have to do them so far in advance, it's sort of like, well, Mm -hmm. you enter and then I'm like, do I just eat the money or do I go? Like, what do I do? And so that's, it's a little bit tricky in agility in that sense. Like those are some of the decisions that you're making around. Do I trial right now? Do I, do I not? As you're bringing a dog up before you know, they get to kind of maintenance mode and then you can, I don't know, you trial as much right. as you think is fun and can afford, but um, it depends a little on your right. goals. We've been talking for a while. There are a couple of things that I'm super curious about around protection sports and like the one thing that I kind of knew. So there's some interesting hardware used in the sport. I, I think that's the, maybe that's the term. Um, Can you talk more about that and sort of why the sport tends to be so heavily punishment-based in terms of training. So, like, where does that come from and then where do things sit for you? And I think... Um, and also Sarah Bruski who we've talked to about DISC, does protection sports and is also a, a mostly positive reinforcement based trainer. So I know that there are, there are folks like you in the sport, but can you talk about that a little bit?
2: So I, I think that's a it's a really complicated answer, but kind of two things I want to talk about. I think that in the instinct sports where the dog is where there's more than just the handler and the dog. So if you think about it. Um, there's the handler and the dog, and then there's this outside influence that the dog is bred to be very interested in, okay? So you have hunting, where you have a dog that is birdie and very interested in the birds. Um, you have herding, where the dog is, you know, interested in the sheep. And you have protection, bitey stuff, where the dog is very interested in in fighting the person. So I think with all three of those, we have a culture of correction mm-hmm. as we're trying to stop the dog we're trying to put the brakes on and have them work with the handler but put the brakes on their extreme motivation for that outside influence right we see correction based culture in all of those yep. sports and i think that um that is a i we're we're dealing with pushy dogs that have an external influence you know depending on genetics and then learned history so we've got that going on and then in Schutzen itself, um, if you want to win, the people who are winning are using tools. That's where you're getting, people are copying who's around them. Um, it's definitely in the culture of the trainings. That's who, when you join a club, you're going to learn how to use the tools because that's how everybody trains. And if you want to do well, which most people eventually do, then you're definitely going to look at your influences of who's winning. And they are definitely using e-callers and, and pinch callers. So that's the most simple thing is if yeah. you want to win, you're going to use winning. And, yep. you know, the 20 people uh, in the U.S. who are doing R plus Schutzen, we're not winning. So um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, it's just as simple as that, really, what happens. There is a lot of motivation in everybody's training in Schutzen, regardless of people using e-collars or prongs. And that's what attracted me to Schutzen in the first place. The dogs were so motivated for their toys. um, And that was very attractive to me. So even when I started doing it in 1993, it was very uh, interesting to me and quite different from what I had experienced in AKC Obedience. So in AKC Obedience, I had experienced that we sort of, and this is 1993, so we're all balance trainers back then. We sort of had choke chains on our dogs and we sort of, you know, kind of jerked them around the the ring. We all healed in a line and, you know, it wasn't very fun for dog or person. And then I got introduced to Shudson and the dogs were like, yes, this is so awesome. And it was very different. And the dogs were so motivated for either their food or the toy stuff. It's definitely a lot of motivation to use. Definitely a lot of bit, a lot of punishment, a lot of clever use of the e-caller. collar. Uh, and that's your short answer. <laughs>
1: But I think that's a good answer. And it was, you know, I noticed that in some of the herding lessons I've done, that it was a lot more correction based in my, because you're trying to get the dog to stop doing the thing. Hey, knock that off, you know, stop biting the sheep. And, right. and so my brain was like, I don't I don't know what else you would do. And I'm sure there are other answers, but, you know, there were corrections going on in front of me. And interesting, because I have quite a soft dog. I mean, so she doesn't need much. And that was quickly picked up on by the instructor that the whole, nope, don't even wave the flag at her. The flag is too intimidating. Just use your voice. That's enough of a correction. So there was some sensitivity there, but still very correction based. So right? I think that's a, that's right. a really astute observation. And also that like, if there is no one that is modeling that behavior for you, then how do you, how do you think up something else when you're, you're brand new? So I I think that's pretty fascinating.
2: Yeah. You can even get into the sport intending to like, want to do it without correction. And there's not a lot of, I mean, you know, you can, you can access me online. Okay. So there's a couple, you can ask access Sarah Sarah and I aren't at your club helping you. Right. In right. So it's very hard for people who even want to do it to then kind of still do it. And then everybody around you is using correction and the whole training is is tailored towards that. So it's, it's just really hard to figure out how to do it differently and even if it can be done differently. A lot of it really depends on your helper in the protection phase. That's really hard, even if your helper is really trying to do it the way you want to. When you come into problem solving, it then, you know, how do you problem solve? Right. You know, there's not a lot of examples in front of you of how to problem solve in a way that doesn't use the e-caller and the prong caller. So it's definitely really, really challenging for everybody involved.
1: Yeah. Well, and it sounds kind of next level, but in agility, those of us that are interested in sort of doing well, as you say, in the international styles of training you know there's not a lot of that level of training going on in the U.S. so we have to and if there is like you say they're sort of not at your club we're fortunate to have a pretty good cadre of talented trainers here in the Pacific Northwest but it's just fascinating to think about how how little access there is to that if that's the training that you want to do and so what is modeled for you is sort of that I I think of it more as like that older style like obedience like you were talking about where the dog looks like they're being drugged around the ring and they're not teaching motivation and some of these other things so an interesting interesting problem to solve of if I want to do this how do I get access to those resources how do I get the feedback that I need to actually improve instead of just, you know, flailing my <laughs> arms around and not being able right. to move forward. So it's a, right. yeah. it's very interesting.
0: Do you think shade that the more positive based trainers are going to win? Do you see that coming soon?
2: I, I, I can't answer that. I did very well with uh, Reiki. I did very well. I got uh, fifth at nationals and seventh at nationals. I'm definitely a more R plus trainer now uh, than I was then. And it really, really depends. It should and depends upon a lot of other factors other than method. It depends upon luck. Did you get the right dog? It depends upon, is your dog healthy and not injured? You need a club. You need a club of people. You need a helper that is training your dog. So there's a lot of factors that go into that. And what I struggle with myself is that if our culture of training is depends on on cleaning up later with an e-collar or a, a prong then if i can't just lay that same foundation on my dog and then not leave off the corrections does that make sense I, I can't just i can't do the same training that everybody in the sport is doing and just leave off the corrections that's not going to work for my strong dog who is yeah. a litter mate your dog okay yeah. so it's not, it's not simple of just leaving off the corrections. I have to do things differently in my foundation so that I have either a plan for a, a different plan other than correcting or a different learning history on my dog. And that depends on my helper um, who I find, uh, who who is around me helping, that kind of thing. I am very, very lucky right now in that I found um, one of my friends... <laughs> who did mostly ring sport, offered to help me out with Schutzen. And so he is now the helper for my little tiny R-plus group. And it is amazing um, how much we've progressed. It's Mm -hmm. very awesome. And while he does use tools on his own dogs and in his job, uh, he's definitely dedicated to helping us do it without tools. So it's been very fun. But the other thing is, is we don't know how to do it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, this, so, because the other thing I was
1: thinking of is the learning curve. So where we, one, people talk about the dark ages of agility when we didn't know how to sort of train anything and there was a lot of, you know, sort of this pointing and shoving behavior to get dogs over things. But I just think about the evolution of running contact training in the 10 years that I've been in the sport and that it was like, well, we want to do this thing. We're not really sure how to do it. And we're going to try some stuff. And this person seems successful, so we'll replicate that. And so this, right. you know, sort of cycle of of us learning how to train, yeah. and that eventually, like right now. Running dog walks are pretty freaking amazing, and we've figured out how to train it so that it's pretty consistent. So it, I feel like it will come for for Schutzen, right? You Because you just have to figure out, like, okay, what what are the steps? What works? What else can we try? How do we make this behavior more clear from the foundation so that there isn't... Because in agility, that's kind of the idea. There's no such thing as cleanup if you train it correctly, right? right. And so I would hope for you... That that's, that's where it, it gets. You're like, well, I have to clean this behavior up. My dog completely understood it because of the way that right. I trained it. Right?
2: Yeah. I mean, we're still in the experimenting phase. We're still going, okay, yeah. how much do we raise this dog's arousal here? And how much do we, you know, put control in there? And, you know, for me, it doesn't bother me in tracking and obedience. I've, I know enough about that. I've done enough dogs. I feel perfectly very confident at getting to a really high level in both my obedience and, and tracking, but the sh- the the protection work is the hard part. Yeah. We're figuring it out right now. We're trying very hard. um, And we don't have a a sheet of you do this, this and this, because we're the ones trying to figure it out. And I think it's, it's very hard in Shotsun because, um, you know, the career of the dogs is so short, because it's such a physical... for them, they, they basically, you know, we're retiring them at six and seven mm. and then so much work goes into it. It's like, you know, do you get another dog every three years? It's And these are not the easiest dogs to live with. <laughs> They're pushy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that hinders it as well. And I, I think, yeah, it's just a hard sport all around, but, but I'm intending to do really well. I have the dog that can do really well. I feel like I have a helper who can do really well. And, you know, I hope that I do really well, but we'll see, you know, we'll see. (laughs) Well, we hope so
1: too. We want to see you do really well and uh, hope you unlock some of those secrets. Well, and you know, the, you said you took a, a, a frame class from a, an agility person. Maybe there are some other little nuggets that you can kind of steal from the ways that we're training complex behaviors with positive reinforcement. I have learned a
2: lot. I've learned a lot from, Susan Garrett, I remember watching. What was her dog's name? Oh gosh, now I'm forgetting. The Swagger oh, right. and that was a video of her sending Swagger to get like one toy in the middle of like food. Oh and all yes. And at that time, I was like, "How did she do that?" <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> I was just, like I was amazed. And then I went on the-
1: Bing, Bing, Bing. i like on the on the <laughs> phone. I I need to talk to this woman. Exactly.
2: I like totally like went deep into that rabbit hole, and now that would just be the easiest thing in the world for my dogs. Now you know, <laughs> I know how to do it. But it- yeah, I've always been one who searches outside the sport. Um, it's actually one of the reasons I do French ring. I think if the ring sports would talk to the Schultzen sports and the Schultzen sports would talk. to, uh. <laughs> learn that. Um, I do my call off. I add toys into shoots and Protection. That came very much from Ring Sports. Um, yeah, I, I I seek all the time for more learning elsewhere to try to figure out how to do this uh, com- perplexing sport.
0: <laughs> well, I definitely think agility folks have a lot to learn from uh, more of the protection sp- uh, sports side, just in terms of really looking at how we can make high arousal behaviors be also controlled and that 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 yeah. foundation of toy skills for me has been a game changer with my current dog and even in not wanting to strangle my you know older border collie right. <laughs> right, right. it's <laughs> lack of being able to let go of the toys well I feel like we could talk so much longer because I feel like I have more questions now than I did before. And I'm so curious, uh, same. Um, same. but I want to be respectful of your time and I really appreciate that you're here because this was super interesting and um, I just want to know more. We definitely will have to have you back to talk more about toy skills because um, that is yes. also a fascinating topic.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Maybe sooner rather yeah, than later.
2: Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah,
0: we can do that. Yeah, definitely. Let's do it. So in the meantime, I know you teach on Fensy Dog Sports Academy. You do some seminars in person. Where can people find you if they want to know more about your training? Um,
2: so I have a website, uh, shadesdogtraining.net. And you can find me on the Fensy site. I teach two classes a term uh, pretty regularly. And I teach webinars and workshops through Fensy too. Seminars are a little bit on a hold right now. Uh, you know, with our pandemic stuff, I do do, I am on Instagram and I kind of want to point that out just because I, I do a lot of um, little video training videos on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook, but I do less videos there. I, I do a lot of videos and you can find me on Instagram at shade. I think it's shade.whitesoul. Um, but yeah, so learning was FENZI uh, and seminars, but mostly FENZI and online stuff. Yeah, Great. that's where you can find me.
1: Awesome. This is super fascinating. Looking forward to continuing this conversation at a later date. Thanks Thanks so much for having me. So that's all for today's episode. Don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast so you can join us for our next episode. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or by visiting our website at
0: www.caninehyjinks.com. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to go out and have some fun with your dogs. Talk to you next time.